Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Filmcast, a podcast about movies. I'm David Chen, and no one told me we were reviewing the sequel to Tick, Tick, Tick today. <laughs> Joining wow. me today is Devinder Hardwar. <laughs> I'm definitely a failure for not accomplishing anything before 30, apparently. <laughs> yeah. And we'll Jeff Kanata. 525,600 podcasts. <laughs> That's what it feels like to record with these knuckleheads. <laughs> You got a great career there, Jeff. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Those Talk are about all... podcasts. No? No? Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Those are all a reference to the fact that today we're going to be reviewing Tick Tick Boom, which is, I guess, a filmed version of a one person show uh, that is on Netflix right now. Um, and before that, we got some, what we've been watching for you, some weekly plugs. You can find more episodes of this podcast at thefilmcast.com. Email us at slash filmcast at gmail.com. Support this podcast, if you like it, at patreon.com slash filmpodcast. Before we get into the show, I do want to acknowledge uh, that we, we did obviously did not time it this way, and it's extremely unfortunate that it turned out this way, but Stephen Sondheim passed away this last week. Yeah, um, and it just so happens that this month we, uh, or the next month, we're planning to re- review a couple of things that uh, are, have heavily involved him in some way, um, including today's review of Tick, Tick, Boom, as well as West Side Story coming up, the mm-hmm. new Steven Spielberg mm-hmm. movie. Um, Steven Sondheim, I don't know what his role has been in your life as a creative person. I will say he was hugely influential to me. West Side Story is probably one of the first musicals I was ever exposed to. Uh, he famously did the lyrics for that musical and obviously he is somebody who has really pushed the form of musicals over the years but just wanted to pause for a moment and see if you guys had any thoughts on Stephen Sondheim is never one of the touchstones for my artistic uh, uh, life um but of course you know as a theater kid growing up um obviously aware and appreciating his contribution i mean the the breadth of work is amazing and certainly this movie um i think sort of uh makes you consider his influence beyond just the things he wrote personally but sort of the people's lives that he may have touched the people he inspired uh i think that's impressive as well Mm -hmm. um but yeah i mean not not one of the ones for me that I just was never a musical theater guy, but yeah. uh, you know, it's certainly a sad passing. He 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 had a very full life. It's it by all accounts, seriously, yeah, and continued to like work into his eighties and nineties. It's really yeah. incredible and inspiring. I uh, I saw somebody post a a list that he had made years ago, many years ago, um, of his top, I think, twenty movies. Did you guys see this on Twitter? Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm. I saw. Uh, yeah. An incredible list. Uh, I would say 90% of the movies, not only have I not seen, but most of them I hadn't even heard of. I mean, it's oh, yeah. a very eclectic list from the 30s and 40s uh, of these of these movies that um, I think it's really cool. Uh, you know, it's a sad thing for his passing, but what an interesting opportunity to, you know, maybe see some films or be aware of some films that, Mm-hmm. I didn't know about just because of uh, the the notability of his passing. I think Spielberg's statement on his passing also referred to the fact that he's an incredible cinephile, you know. So yeah, that's something a lot of people didn't know. I didn't quite realize that either. So yeah, he's uh, you know, 
I, I was somebody, I was never a theater kid. I was probably one of those people who was mostly annoyed by the theater kids in high school because uh, they're the ones that are going to go Which around. Which explains a lot of the dynamic on the podcast. For sure. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Like those kids who could just bust out into Rent songs all of a sudden. Like, man, yeah. I, I just got flashbacks. There. Yeah, thank you. Super annoying. Um, yeah. But I fully understand like he Sondheim is a once in a generation talent yeah. and, you know, a true genius who's contributed so much to the world. So I, I've never been really into musicals. I've liked some of the adaptations we've seen, um, like Sweeney Todd. That was fun. Uh, but yeah, I'm not a big musical guy. I like his songs and it is really interesting to talk about all this stuff. Um, I'm just happy he was like able to actually work together with Spielberg a bit too. Like Spielberg said, look, they basically became friends as they started, as they worked on West Side Story stuff, I, I wonder if he even got to see a final cut of the film. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very curious because in a recent interview that Stephen Sondheim gave to uh, Stephen Colbert, which I'd recommend, mm-hmm. it's very touching because um, Stephen Colbert was hugely influenced by Sondheim. Um, he said that uh, there are that Steven Spielberg and I think Tony Kushner wrote the screenplay for West Side Story. Like they have some interesting surprises in store mm. in West Side Story. So I'm very curious because that's a musical that has obviously been done many, many times. And so I'm like, hmm, I wonder uh, if and how uh, that musical, the the movie version, will be different from previous versions we've seen. But the only other thing that I'll mention about Sondheim is just. Uh, this was a guy who believed that musicals could be used to say something, and he w- seemed never to be content with the form of musicals. And what I mean by that, I- I'm saying that in a positive sense. Like he always tried to kind of push the limits of what was possible in that format. And uh, you know, like example, the 1970 musical Company, right? And mm-hmm. and how uh, interesting in structure and sort of plot that was compared to other musicals. I think uh, a Sunday in the Park with George, uh, also another great example. I just think um, it, it's as you said, Devendra, once in a generation talent. Just wanted to give him a shout well, out at the top of the show. Yeah, there's that ahead, wonderful uh, scene. This is not a spoiler, I, I believe, but mm-hmm. there's this wonderful mm-hmm. scene in the film we're going to talk about today, where they're just sort of watching Sunday in the Park with George on TV and just marveling at the genius of it. You know, yeah. uh, which I think a lot of people did. It's a very, uh, a very revolutionary kind of way to do a musical yeah exactly so anyway uh steven sondheim we greatly appreciate his contributions to culture and society and uh we look forward to discussing him more throughout this month all right let's get to what we've been watching this week i had a chance to check out a few things a bunch of things this week mm-hmm. uh, i'll try to make it as quick as possible but had a chance to watch the movie flea oh, which yes. devendra you Great. talked about i think uh, at sundance last, mm-hmm. so about a year ago Almost a year um, ago. It's crazy. Year ago, I, yeah. We are currently prepping for the next Sundance you yeah. know, next month. So, so wow. Flea is a documentary directed by Jonas Rasmussen. Uh, it's a Danish film. And Neon is distributing it. And uh, it will be shortly available for streaming, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. I think you okay. will be able to view it relatively soon. This is about the Red uh, Hot Chili Peppers drum, uh, bassist? No? It's yes. quite the yes. opposite of that, actually. Um, no, Flea is about, uh, it's a documentary about a refugee fleeing Afghanistan. And uh, it's basically about the idea of home and trying to find home and the traumas that people can endure when they uh, flee from a place. And I thought the movie was very good. Uh, I think it's very powerful. It's use of animation. It, the art style, I think, is mm-hmm. really it's beautiful. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's compelling. The, you know, you know, Devinger, I was thinking about you when I was watching this movie because 
I thought the art style was beautiful, but like uh, the the frame rates were not very high. It's for some it's of the very it's very specifically doing that kind of like low frame rate animation thing, which is a it's an aesthetic. You know, it is yeah. a choice, and if you commit to it, I think uh, you know it could lead to some incredible things. Yeah, I agree. I, I no, no complaints about the art style, but it is very specific. Mm-hmm. Um, and I uh, I just have to say, I think the movie is very powerful and. Uh, yeah. The the big thing I take away from a movie like Flea is that there is thousands of people around the world that need to fight with their lives for the things that many of us take for granted every day. Mm-hmm. And just to just to exist, just to you know be a citizen in in, uh, in a country where in you're a country, free. Yeah. Uh, there there's a moment, you know, there's a scene in a nightclub in that movie that has stuck with me since yeah. I saw it in January. You know, it is just so perfect. Yeah. It's it, there's many visually arresting like just literally the opening five uh, thirty seconds of the movie was mm-hmm. like uh, that's gonna stay with me for a long time. Um, so I think the movie is very powerful. I think you should watch it uh, if you have a chance to check it out. It's Flea. It's gonna be out on video on demand in the near future. I think uh, is my understanding. Okay, uh, had a chance to watch uh, Belfast, the new Kenneth Branagh movie. Have you guys about heard his, anything about, about his, this movie? Yeah, but it's about his yeah. childhood, right? Yeah. 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 Like autobiographical. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So on the one hand, I am grateful that Kenneth Branagh is making stuff that feels really personal. You know? Mm-hmm. It's you always think cool. Thor was personal? Uh, what'd you say? <laughs> so you don't think Thor was personal? <laughs> I yeah. don't, sadly. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I think it's cool when a director that we've known for a long time like makes something personal like this, and you know he he should he this guy has contributed so much to culture he should be able to make whatever he wants. Sure, sure. Uh, Belfast is a kind of a black and white uh, narrative film about uh, what was going on in Ireland during the what are called the Troubles, and apparently it's heavily based on Kenneth Branagh's life, and which is uh, crazy to think that that is. Not that long ago mm-hmm. that there mm-hmm. was kind of open warfare in the streets, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right? I mean, I don't, I don't know. I feel like we're, we've already had that recently in America, <laughs> yeah. you know? So yeah. I don't know that Maybe. it's, it's does, does feel that long ago. It's back in American form now. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I, uh, I gotta say, I wasn't a huge fan of this movie. Um, <laughs> no. I was hoping that it would be kind of this beautiful, heartfelt story about like this beautiful, heartfelt coming of age story. And I didn't love it. I found it to be kind of listless mm. uh, where a- every single scene, it felt like it was repeating the theme of the movie, which is Belfast is our home. We cannot possibly leave here. Right. That's mm-hmm. kind of the, mm-hmm. the theme. Um, and meanwhile, all hell is breaking loose in Belfast because of, you know, the troubles and all these other issues that the country is facing at the time, like record unemployment and so on. And so, uh, I did not find it to be particularly focused and I didn't really enjoy the kid actor. And I also thought the parents in the movie were distractingly good looking. Um, (laughs) Cause they're supposed to be like really like working class, you know what I'm saying? But you got Jamie Dornan as the father. Yeah. Yeah. And he's just such a he's a he's a yeah. good looking man. He's a but yeah. he's kind of a pretty boy. Major criticism: too many dilfs, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like the whole time, nobody like, good this, looking works for a living. <laughs> this guy is a construction worker, and yeah, uh, yeah, K- yeah. Balf is the mother, and, and yeah. you know she's obviously very beautiful as well. And I, I'm just saying, like, if you watch the movie, guys, you would know what I'm talking about. Okay? It, it sounds like, like a Zoolander thing, you know, of like Zoolander <laughs> going to be a coal miner. And you're like, I, 
They don't buy that at yeah, all. Exa- exactly. It's ex- thank you, thank you, Dimitri. Yes, yeah. uh, you can make fun of me, but also let's bring it back to the reality, which is that it is in fact distracting. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I I didn't enjoy the movie that much, and and actually, like, th- this is a true story. Literally, right after I watched this movie, Belfast, I went to my Prime Video app and I turned on Cold War. Yeah, you were like, I need black and white, which is another black and white period yeah. piece about a somewhat tempestuous romance. And I was like, I mean, Cold War is fucking amazing. That movie is yeah. incredible. Everyone should watch it. So good. And Bleak I kind of was hell. like, I wonder how it would play even now. But yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. it's 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 still, and it's just <laughs> so like bleak. every every frame is just so meticulously constructed. Mm-hmm. And definitely, Kenneth Branagh makes a lot of choices in Belfast. You know, like it's it does it is a movie where you feel the influence of the director. Example. Uh, when the kid in the movie is watching art of some kind, like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang on the big mm-hmm. screen, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is in color, and, and the rest of the movie is is black and white. That's and a that's choice. Just like, yeah, that is very manner. It's like <laughs> it, I gotta say, I, it was it was annoying. <laughs> like, I yeah, didn't, I didn't like it because it's so distract. I understand what he's trying to say. He's like, when he was a kid. He experienced the art in color, and so like yeah, he wants the us to experience color, the technicolor uh, mm-hmm. thing on the screen was so overwhelming and amazing that he had to. You know, it was right. vibrant put, in a way it, that his life was not. And you're watching it, and you're. I'm watching. It, I'm like, this feels like really pretentious and annoying to me. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, and so I, I got to say, I didn't like Belfast very much. I'm sorry, mm. but at the end of the day, it is impressive that Kenneth Branagh made a movie, and I really appreciate that he got to make you know a movie that felt really personal to him. So. Uh, other people may get more out of it. For me, I appreciated you know other movies that reminded me of a movie like Belfast. I'm thinking of um, Cold War. I'm thinking Roma. of Roma. Yeah, uh, both black and white films that I thought just the the technical wizardry behind those movies, the craft behind those movies, was just so impressive that like it demands my attention in a way that Belfast did not. Um, and Belfast, the story just there wasn't enough there to to keep me compelled unfortunately so mm-hmm. uh that movie belfast is out in theaters right now in limited release i had a chance to watch arcane season one i took jeff Kanata's yeah. recommendation arcane season i think davinger and i both recommend yeah, it. yeah 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 uh and the I, I friday morning friday after thanksgiving i got on my exercise bike to work off the the turkey that i ate the day before uh-huh. And I put on Arcane Season 1 on my iPad. And by Friday evening, I had finished Season 1. Still <laughs> on Hopefully not the bike. Just, yeah, still riding. on the bike. I'm He's riding the bike what? right now as we speak. Yeah. This uh, is why no. Dave needs to do a stationary bike, because he'll just never come back home. He just starts <laughs> watching something, and he'd be miles away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Arcane Season 1, this show is incredible. Uh, right? I, I'm so glad you like it! I, I'm actually, like insult like mildly insulted that you compare this to what if season one like i you, you, compared the animation <laughs> the animation yes. yeah no no this yes, this makes yes. the animation from what if looks like like children's legos like this I, makes exactly. it this is, that was what i was saying is that i yeah, thought the animation yeah. of what if was excellent and it this is transcends it to such a degree yeah okay okay good that's good, what I, exactly the point all, I was all right making. good good i i, I mm-hmm. thought you were like it's pretty close to what if that's what i remember no i said you corrected it the okay, whole cool. point was that i watched what if and went man the animation for what if is awesome and then i watched this and went what was i thinking <laughs> yeah. this is incredible this is what's yeah. supposed like, to look like yeah. when you buy a book of like uh, or you, you you buy a book of like concept art 
for like a yeah. fantasy show like uh, Lord of the Rings or whatever. Except like an animated version of the concept art book, basically, and not, right? Like, and not skimped on the animation. Like the literally every frame of this could be in a concept book. Yes. frame. Mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's a page. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think we're actually as FYI, uh, our current plan is to do an after dark reviewing Arcane season one next week. So I will keep my thoughts very brief here. I'll just say I thought the animation is really incredible, beautiful, well done. Um, the the story is like wow, like all these secondary characters I actually care about, right? And yeah. mm-hmm. that's really mm-hmm. hard to do. It's one of those shows that where it introduces this whole host of secondary characters, and I'm like, I'm invested in most of these, you know. Uh, and the thing that's most impressive to me about Arcane season one streaming on Netflix is that the filmmaking is really amazing. And right? what I mean by like yeah. the filmmaking choices where it it feels largely shot and edited as though it's a kind of live action sci-fi film, right? Like and and, and the way that they make these editing decisions like uh deciding when to show close up, deciding when to use depth of field, uh shallow depth of field, deciding when to use cutaways, mm-hmm. uh deciding how to pace things. It just it, it, it at once feels like it's making the most of its medium of being kind of, you know, a quote unquote film, even though it's on Netflix. And, and but also at the same time, taking advantage of the fact that it's animation and it can basically yeah. show anything. Um, there are moments, sequences in this show that I after I finished season one, I went back and revisited because I was so in awe of how well they were executed. Yeah. Um, so did you watch it all on your iPad? Dave? No, I didn't. I, okay, I after I yeah. got off, after I, I was about to say like this is a bold like cinematic work yes. too. Like it is, it's worth playing on a bigger screen. Yes, and yes. Uh, maybe maybe you guys will understand more of what I was complaining about with Invincible, which compared <laughs> to you yeah. know looking at this show and thinking back of Invincible is like is that just like stick figure stop motion practically is what we were watching there. Well, to be uh, fair, Invincible was like kind of two D hand drawn, whereas this is kind of. Yeah, 3D, right? So this is, this is 3D of, animation with like digital models and stuff. It, but yeah, it, and I, I understand. I understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. It also, you know, it's the fluidity and everything. Yeah, the yeah. fluidity. It also, yes. evidently took them what like six years to make this show. So. Really? Yeah. I could. It, I could imagine. And the CG, CG animation. Honestly, I, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but a lot of times it could be bad. It could look like just bad computer generated models too. Like, so I do love that we're in this uh, mood now where you could do something like. Into the Spider Verse and this, which are really heavily, you know, uh, rooted in CG animation, but still look lively, like they're two yeah. D almost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They have a soul. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Dave, do you agree that it uh, it's almost better to watch it without any knowledge of League of Legends? <laughs> I have no knowledge of League of Legends. <laughs> yeah, and, nor do I intend to acquire any. And uh, I <laughs> really enjoyed the show. A lot of people were asking, like, is it possible to watch it without League of Legends knowledge? I think it's yeah. probably better. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, arguably better. Yeah. Um, I actually had somebody reach out to me on. I, I've been tweeting and Instagramming about this show, and somebody, Justin. Listener Justin reached out. He said, "Whatever you do, just don't play League of Legends." <laughs> oh, I, I said, "Any danger you'll lose of that, your right, life Dave? to it." I, I, yeah, I said, "Why is that?" And he says, "Toxic fan base, and you'll lose hundreds, if not thousands, of hours, <laughs> and not even be good at it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, as somebody who yeah. went deep on a MOBA for several years, I can uh, relate. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. anyway, that's Arcane Season One and Patreon.com/slash/FilmPodcast. Sign up for the After Dark tier if you want to hear our full review of Season One. Um, should be a good time next week. All right, a couple of other quick things I want to mention before we move on. Uh, a couple of things on YouTube 
I watched. I just need to give a shout out to these things. Mr. Beast, one of the biggest YouTubers of all time. And he has been building hype in recent weeks for a recreation of Squid Game uh, that he's been doing. He spent three and a half million dollars recreating all the games on Squid Game. <laughs> As one does. Uh, huh. And ba- basically like try- trying to building the sets of it Squid costs, Game. To yeah. It costs a lot of money, Dave, to get strangers to uh, risk their lives yeah, for you. Indeed. Yeah, well, he didn't also, kill anyone in this one. But yeah. tell, me, tell me you don't understand Squid Games. Without, Without telling, telling me, me you don't understand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. And well I was going to say, my God. First of all, let me just say, on a technical level, production design level, it's incredible what he's done. He's recreated Squid Game sets, literally to a greater standard of fidelity than Squid Game the show itself. Because if you look at the making of Squid Game, mm-hmm. many of those sets were not even built for real. Like, right, right. They were many of them were green screened or blue screened in. And he actually built the actual real set for me, for most of these games. I'm imp- impressed by the amount of thought that went in to how to actually execute the game. Because if you watch the show Squid Game, you know that like the 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 show depends on a certain number of people being at a certain number of you know what I'm saying like by game three there needs to be this many people or the number of people needs to be divisible by ten, for example, right? And he put a lot of thought into how he would make it so that. Uh, there wouldn't be any problems with the flow of the game. And so all that stuff is really impressive to watch. And just like the, uh, it's like Agent Smith from that scene from The Matrix. Like, have you ever looked at the scale of it? Just marveled at its genius. Like, that's kind of mm-hmm. what I'm doing at Mr. Beast's Squid Game recreation. It's it's just so impressive. On the other hand, what Devendra said, which is it feels extremely dystopian yeah. to watch people. Th- there's a really sad part of the video where, um, he's interviewing people about what they would do with the money because the prize he's giving out is, I think, over four hundred fifty thousand dollars uh-huh. to whoever wins the first. And these look like people who could actually use the money. And it's like, and when I say they look like, what I don't, I'm not saying anything like they they look a certain way. I'm just saying, yeah. based on their interviews and the fact that they have all this time to participate in this game, yeah. it feels like they could probably use the money. It's and like, it's like how how were they chosen? How closely did this end exactly. up just replicating the like horror of Squid Game? You and, know, and, and then yeah. it's, it feels so disturbing because you're watching it. Yep, and well, it's for your entertainment. Like you're Did watching you, these people you struggle are, to like. Win you are the money. horrible American actors now. That's exactly. that's who you yes, are. Yes, you are exactly. the horrible. So it it makes you complicit in the Squid Game. That said, I don't think Mr. Beast is aware of any of that dynamic. Like that's I don't think my he, problem. That he, is I don't my think major he cares problem. About any that of that stuff, makes it right? so much worse. That makes yeah. it worse. <laughs> yeah, it'd be one thing. It'd be one thing if he was trying to like subvert it and be like, "Ha ha, you're the audience now." Right. Right. But he, I don't think he gives a shit about any of that. So yeah. Anyway. I, I saw clips of this. I just want to say, like, I saw, I saw that. First of all, I still don't know who Mr. Beast is. I realize he's a very popular YouTuber, but I, I refuse. He's a very popular to YouTuber go, who, to go deeper who, than that. Who has gotten yeah. famous basically by giving away vast sums of yes, money on YouTube yes, videos. Yes, yes. Right? I, yeah. I get the pitch, and then I saw the concept stuff for this in some video and pictures, and I immediately tapped out because I was like, <laughs> "Where? What are we doing as a society? We almost had something good here of everybody like realizing." Man, capitalizing is destroying our our lives, you know. And we all kind of rallied around Squid Game a little bit. And uh, this uh, way too rich YouTuber is just like, "Hey guys, those games look fun, you know." And let me give some money to people who are much less fortunate than me. Disgusting. <laughs> so that's Mr. B's Squid Game recreation. Uh, you can watch it on YouTube. It is extremely technically impressive. 
uh, just the fact that they were able don't. to just, <laughs> you just don't the fact have that to they were able to it. make it and film it and edit it and publish it in the last like four weeks is impressive, but also at the same time it is horrible. Yeah. Um, so YouTube, what should he YouTube recreate like next, a, Devendra? What, do you, yeah. you should, what should he recreate next? Seven? Uh, seven, yeah. <laughs> seven. Uh, some, there, there's so many things. Uh, YouTube <laughs> needs to add like a fart button for things like this. Not just like a downvote, but like a... I don't yeah. know. Take this off the internet. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of things we can feel good about, though, uh, <laughs> Tim Heidecker is, did this, published this video on his YouTube channel, uh, like on a show called Office Hours, and this thing is incredible. It is a, I think, 70-minute-long parody oh, of man. the Joe Rogan podcast. Now, he should have done Squid Game remake. <laughs> like, yes. that would have been incredible. But okay. This I'm thing not, is freaking incredible. Go ahead, Jeff. Well, doing? I'm just, I'm, I'm, I can't wait for you to say what you think, but I uh, <laughs> have a hard time believing any parody can live for 70 minutes, you know, can can just sustain. Oh, Heidecker can sustain This is quite what a lot. I appreciate. This is what yeah. I appreciate about it. It's like he is fearless in the sense that he does not give a shit whether you get the reference right like right. he is just gonna go for it i mean look tim heidecker is a far greater comedic talent than than myself okay so i'm just gonna put that out there but mm-hmm. there are times on the internet where i will see a very stupid tweet going around and I will parody that tweet. I'll write a parody of that tweet that makes me look dumb <laughs> without referring to the original tweet. Uh-huh. Right. And then I get a bunch of tweets being like, you know, wow, David, you really are dumb, you know, or something like that. Right. And yeah. And you know what? I could just I could have just put a reference to the original tweet. I could have quote tweeted. I could have made a reference. But you know what? I press on because it's like sometimes you just gotta go for it. Uh if if I have uh, seen farther than others, it is because I have stood on the shoulders of giants like Tim Heidecker. Basically, <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, it is so incredible how none of these people break character for the entire time, and they don't give a shit whether you get the reference or not. They're just going for it, and if you get the reference, it is hilarious what they do in this. So, I want to encourage you to check it out. It's again on Tim Heidecker's YouTube channel. I think they spent uh, all Thanksgiving Day broadcasting it repeated on repeat for twelve hours. <laughs> I, uh, I love so it. it's like a twelve-hour long video, but I think only the first like hour is like original content. Um, but it's if you have wanted to see the Joe Rogan podcast taken down a peg and a parody of basically what these kind of hangout podcasts are like, mm-hmm. you should check it out. So. Do you, are you a? Do you listen to Joe Rogan? And B? Do you believe listening to Joe Rogan is essential for enjoying this? Parody? No, I don't. I, I I don't believe listening to Joe Rogan is essential for this. And mm-hmm. I know I don't listen to Joe Rogan. I've seen the clips online, obviously on YouTube and stuff. But um, I don't listen to the Joe. I'm not a regular listener to the Joe Rogan podcast. But uh, yeah, I I think he invented you check podcasting. This out. You know, Dave. Uh, what'd you say? He's what? He invented podcasting. Oh yeah, that's mm-hmm. what I hear. That's mm-hmm. what I hear. I I think. Uh, it is a good parody of like what uh, you know dudes hanging out podcast is like mm-hmm. um Ca- camera points we Tim look Heidecker, straight in the camera right now yeah yeah we look straight <laughs> in the camera jim halpert look into camera yeah uh, which ironically tim heidecker has done an amazing job of with his other podcast on cinema Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And which is also a YouTube and I think adult swim show that was, show's incredible yeah it, it, it is a parody of shows like the, the the film cast uh, mm. i would argue 
and um, so released really early on. Whose yeah, giant shoulders is standing on whom, David? I know it's it's giant shoulders all the way yeah. down, Jeff. First, okay. first you have to attack the movie podcasters, and then you go to Small Fry, like Joe Rogan. Okay, yes, that's right. Yeah, that's right. yeah. Well, you got to take out the big dogs first before. <laughs> Before you get to the Joe yeah. Rogan, yeah, you go to you know you go to the prison yard, you punch the biggest guy in the mouth. That's us. <laughs> yes. That's us. Yes. Um, okay. Anyway, that's Tim Heidecker's Joe Rogan parody. Check it out. It's on YouTube on Tim Heidecker's YouTube channel. That's what I've been watching this week. This episode of the Filmcast is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe every day. Mubi premieres a new film every day. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected. It's like your own personal film festival, streaming anytime, anywhere. And just one example of the great kinds of things you can discover on Mubi is South Korean cinema. If you're like us on the film cast and you love directors like Bong Joon-ho and Hong Sang-soo, you've got to check out the South Korean cinema section on Mubi. It's brand new curated, fantastic. And that's just one example of the kinds of interesting films you can find on Mubi. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash filmcast. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash filmcast for a whole month of great cinema for free. Do you love Dune and other movies by Denis Villeneuve? Are you impressed at how well I pronounced that? Well, there's an entire section on Mubi for the early films of Denis Villeneuve. I'm telling you, they have the best taste in movies at Mubi. You got to check it out. And why not? You can try it free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash filmcast. M-U-B-I dot com slash F-I-L-M-C-A-S-T for 30 days of great cinema for free. All right. Divinia Hardware, what are some things you've been watching this week? Oh, this week I got to check out Benny Chan's final film, Raging Fire. And I have to say, this movie absolutely rules. Dave, you need to see this, like ASAP. Uh, this is a film starring Donnie Yen, Nicholas Say, and uh, you know a bunch of like great actors. Um, it is... I will say the script is not very good. It, it is a very typical like Hong Kong action film about like good cop who is so good. He will not like, you know, do things that his superiors are telling him to do. He won't he won't like, you know, take bribes or anything uh, versus a bad cop turned criminal who is out there killing everybody. Um, the script is not good. I, I think that's one thing. Like whenever they set up the the plot of what they're doing, like these gangs have a big drug deal and our job is to stop the big drug deal, you know, or somebody will talk about being in jail. It's like I was in jail for several years, you know, and uh, therefore I'm bad now. Uh, <laughs> there is a lot of that. But what works about this movie is Donnie Yen being an absolute badass. And uh, he's also action director on this movie. Like he is for many of his films, I believe um, this film, like, has nods to so many things it has nods to like you know john woo films and sui hark's movies especially like time and tide there's some mission impossible 2 in here there is a minivan versus motorcycle like shootout and chase that is absolutely beautiful there is a street level shootout that is very much trying to be heat in like a really crowded uh hong kong street too like just glorious explosive stuff with great choreography uh great action all around and like there's just some really cool shots and you know benny chan is not i don't know if he's like as a household and name as like uh 
Yun Wing, uh, Yen like, Yuping. Yeah, Yen Yuping, and a lot of people like he's he's done a lot of films, but they've tended to be kind of schlocky, right? Like he did Gen X Cops, which I remember being really big at the time. New Police Story and Who Am I? So he has worked with Jackie Chan quite a bit. Um, and his most recent film was like that one uh, with like cat aliens. It's called Now. Uh, but he he died shortly after this movie uh-huh. came out. So oh. like this is his last contribution to cinema. And as like a swan song for him, just like big explosive action and tremendous set pieces. I think it is well worth watching. Um it's on video on demand now too, so you can like rent it or buy it. It's also I, I noticed it was on the Hi Ya streaming video channel, which is a service that just uh, just serves action movies, um, and that, it's been there for like a month too. So maybe I'll check that thing out. But this movie is a ton of fun. Um, you know, skip past uh, just suffer through some of the generic stuff in terms of like the action and Donnie Yen being fantastic it is uh it's definitely worth watching um also really cool to see like nicholas say being a bad guy in a movie like this because most recently he's been like a food personality on on tv you know this guy this guy has had a uh varied career he's all over the place but this movie's ton of fun check it out all right that's raging fire uh when i google it i see the blu-ray cover in which donnie yen's like skull uh-huh. Looks really disproportionately large compared to the rest of his body, <laughs> mm. uh, which is a good sign of what we're going to get. Okay, but you've intrigued me, Devendra. I'm probably going to check this out. I think it is it is made for you, like specifically. So I think how you'll did, enjoy. How it did you uh, stream it? I streamed on it's on iTunes now, so I just bought it because I was like, nice. I've been meaning blind to watch by this movie raging forever. fire, blind by raging fire, right. ton of fun. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to do the yep. same thing. All right, uh, that's raging fire. Uh, what else have you been watching, Devendra? I've also been watching um, a show called Doctor Brain. That's a great title for a show. Uh, it's by Kim Ji-Woon, who is a director we've followed quite a bit. Like He's done uh, stuff like The Good, The Bad, and The Weird. Um, yeah. I saw I- The incredibly Devil. Incredibly talented South yes. Korean director. Uh, yes. Good, The Bad, and The Weird is amazing. Bittersweet Life's amazing. Tale of Two Sisters is amazing. Yeah. I, saw I saw The, the Devil, Devil is amazing. It's truly one of the most fucked up things yes. I've ever seen. So yes. it is... It is up there. This is an Apple TV Plus TV series. You've got like six episodes of Kim Ji-Woon like magic here. Um, I think he tends to be a very like maximalist type of filmmaker in the first 10 minutes of the show. Just so much stuff happens. Like so many things all at once. Like uh, people's families get killed in like a half a second. Um, But it's it's about this doctor who's invented this technology that basically lets him uh, copy the memories of somebody else. So there's a lot of like Cronenberg in here. Um, I've only seen the first couple episodes. So it's more like it is very much like setting up a Cronenberg S mystery um, as he's like, you know, uh, absorbing these brains. They also start to like haunt his own, his own like life and his own memory. And he's starting to like, forget what are his memories and, you know, mm. visions from those other people. And they could be very much like serial uh, killers, mm-hmm. like a possessor. The, uh Yep. Very much like Possessor. There's a bit of the Inception. The Brandon Cronenberg film. The Brandon, yeah, yeah, from last yeah, year. yeah. yeah. If you like those things, if you like weird sci-fi, uh, I think it's really worth uh, checking out. And also, Kim Ji-Woon, like, it's fantastic. So I'll watch anything he does. The show also has a great title. So, yeah. Dr. Brain. How far into it are you, Devendra? How many episodes? I'm two episodes in, and it's, uh, I've read the reviews, and a lot of people said, like, you know, it's it's kind of listless after a while, but I like the style of it. 
I like Kim Ji Woon enough and the mystery is interesting enough where I'm like, okay, I'm going to I'm going to keep going just because I want to see where this goes. It is not like top tier TV, but it's really cool and intriguing and unique. And yeah, I like to check those things out when I can. All right. Uh, what else are you watching, Devendra? I saw the first two episodes of Hawkeye, which premiered on Disney Plus uh, over the weekend. And I have to say, it's uh, it's pretty fun. Yeah, it's all right. That's exactly yeah, that's exactly what I said about it last week. Yeah, yeah it's pretty fun. It's pretty fun. Pretty fun. Haley Steinfeld, yeah. MVP. Like she's she, awesome. she's she's, she's making it work. Great. I was great. not uh, I was not really looking forward to this because if you, you guys remember from our conversations about MCU stuff, I I have the distinct feeling that Hawkeye just <laughs> never quite belonged in in everything. You know, like you you've got Bo- gods, bone arrow guy doesn't want to hang out bone with arrow the, guy. an actual god. Exactly. Exactly. Like it's uh, he's always just felt out of place. Um, and the show doesn't quite reckon with that either. But I do like Renner as an action star, and now he is like you know he's older, he's slower, he's not the badass guy he was ten years ago or whenever we saw him in uh, was it the Bond movie that Uh, is escaping me right now? The Bond movie? You mean the uh, the uh, Jason Bourne movie? The Bourne Bourne? No, 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 no. The Mission one Impossible that, 4? No. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the... Oh, oh, oh uh, Hurt Locker. Yeah. Hurt, Hurt Locker. Locker, there you go. The Bomb. Oh, the bomb. bomb. The bomb. <laughs> I yeah. Bond I like, as well. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. But yeah. listen, he was like the it guy for a while. And I think <laughs> even when... Action, that action uh, spectacular Hurt Locker. The... Hurt Locker. I mean, it was. <laughs> yeah. In fact, like it was, it was a very specific type of action movie, but it was very much one of those. And then tried to do Bourne, tried to do a couple other things. And then I think Mission Impossible has been the best one. And even then, he was best as a side character, not as like the lead guy, right? Even though they were probably trying to, you know, uh, prune him to be the replacement for Tom Cruise. It just never quite felt like that. Um, But older Jeremy Renner, now somebody who has like visible, you know, lines of regret on his face and everything, (laughs) I think is very good as like this guy who has seen too much shit and who now has to deal with this young girl who is you know he has to kind of help shepherd her a little too um i have never been a huge fan of uh of that character um the character Haley steinfeld plays i don't have the thing in front of me um just because like uh i think even in the matt fraction comics like she was she's it's it's another batman thing it's another like poor little rich kid thing where they suffer tragedy and they spend their entire lives kind of training because of that. And they have limitless resources and they're very highly skilled at one specific thing. Um, but I think Haley Steinfeld really, really makes it work. She's also a voice in Arcane, too. So she's yeah. just popping up everywhere yeah. now. But she's um, very charismatic mm-hmm. in Hawkeye, I think. She's and very charismatic. It's, yeah. it's fun. It's funny. Uh, I think visually the action is really good. I like Vera Farmiga. And uh, there's some like cool, fun cuts to like there's we we are introduced to a, a villain character who I know is going to be a bigger deal later on, who's just like s- chilling out, listening to Depeche Mode at the end of the second episode. I'm like, you know what? Yeah, OK, I'm I'm down with the vibe of what this show is putting down. It's a lot of fun and a lot less uh, self-serious than uh, some of the other, you know, TV stuff from Marvel. So I, yeah. I'm down with it. I have some more things to say about it now that I can say things now that the show is out in mm-hmm. the world. But I'm going to wait to see what Jeff thought of Hawkeye. Well, I, I I thought it was pretty fun. Yeah, there you go. I don't, yeah. In contrast to you guys, I thought it was pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> your wildly different opinion. Yeah. All right. So Informed here, from your history things, of MCU. Yeah. Here's some things I can say about it. Right. One is uh, Rogers the Musical is incredible. 
right? Like, the, <laughs> no, it that is not. Is, what'd you say? No, it is not. It is yes, specifically it is. bad in the way it's supposed to be. It like, is going to yeah. take over the world. Like, I think we're going <laughs> to yeah. see like a hundred, a thousand memes about Rogers the Musical in the next. People are series. already saying they should make that. I'm like, guys, yes. did you not get the joke? Did you yeah. not see <laughs> what it was saying? Uh, um, and the so I love that Hawkeye. This show is takes itself less seriously than any of the Marvel, uh, other Marvel shows, in my opinion. I well, think still it's just, dealing with, I think, serious things because he 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 lost his entire family. You know that the 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 snap turned him into a goddamn murderer. So yeah. seeing him kind of reckon with that too is interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, I guess. Um, you know, I personally was not really excited about seeing that backstory explored. Like, hey, did you know that one of the uh, Avengers, like, like he himself mentally had a break after the snap yeah. and like uh, killed a bunch of Asian people? Basically, sure, I mean, they were he, like in the in the uh, the you know yeah. the triads Yakuza. or whatever, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Yakuza, you know. But I'm, uh, I'm sure he killed many people of many. Like, here's the thing. Like, and yeah, yeah, that scene in Endgame is certainly him just massacring Asian. It's pretty people. rough. I think scene. the broader the broader thing though is that he was a superhero who turned into a straight up like Punisher murderer, you know, and I I guess he's okay. Apparently, I, I, guess I just always felt like it yeah. was, yes. So good good question, Devendra. Good question. Um, I guess I always just felt like that was like kind of a mini Tom mm-hmm. Cruise's Last Samurai situation that happened there, <laughs> which you know is a movie that kind of annoys me as time has gone on. Um, but, but he was not the last samurai in that movie, too. People, people forget. Yeah, people forget. Yes, it's true. But uh, I second think to that, last samurai. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, I'm I'm a little bit bummed. Like there there are so many kind of issues introduced by that that I just don't think the show is going to deal with any in any yeah. meaningful way. Is, but, is he going to reveal his identity as Ronin, and then the world is like, wait, so how many war crimes did you commit? <laughs> Exactly. Buddy. I don't think the show's going to deal with any of that stuff. Yeah. Like, I think it's just meant to be like kind of a fun, breezy show, and I'm cool the, with that. There's um, a LARPing yeah. sequence in the yeah. show that was like, that is the vibe of uh, of comedy I yes. want to deal with, too. And, uh, you know, as somebody who has hung out with LARPers and done done some of those occasional fighting things, it is hilarious to see somebody like Hawkeye kind of thrust into that situation and be forced to play by the LARPing rules. So yeah. the show's specifically nerdy in really yeah. great ways. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's fun because it has the sensibility of like a Xena warrior princess or a Hercules, yes. but, yes. but the production value of a Marvel film, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, it's yes. like, what, what if, great, what if great comparison, Jeff? Yeah. yeah what mm-hmm. if you created one of those shows, but had a much bigger budget to do it? Uh, and I think it's like, oh, it would be really fun. <laughs> you know, yeah. you wouldn't have to cringe at the low production quality. You could just have fun and be like, wow, this is really well made. <laughs> Agreed. Um, also, uh, really amazing opening credits. That's what uh, I want oh, to yeah. throw that out there as well. And like totally the uses sequence. that aesthetic from the Matt Fraction comic, which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Awesome, but also like that is a whole other thing too. Yeah. Because I believe uh, David Aha, the, uh, the artist, is barely credited, even though like it the style like the look of it the credits the opening like animated semi-animated sequence is all his style and uh yeah there's a long-running thing about the about marvel and the mcu not really crediting the comics people and even matt fraction i hear came about not because of uh not through marvel like not through the studio but because somebody was friends with him and connected him with the uh, the showrunner so things are weird i'm very iffy about all that stuff uh, so that is Hawkeye 
uh, first, uh, Devinger and I have seen the first two episodes. First episode's out now. Mm-hmm. It's fun. It's the a first blast. two are out. The first two are out. It, it, I'm enjoying it. I really yeah. am enjoying it a lot. I, I, yeah. I'm having a good time with it. And it's kind of the show I need right now. It's, yeah. You know? yeah. And yeah, as I think I mentioned last week, like it's one of the only Marvel shows that doesn't have, like, where one of the main characters is not an Avenger. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that's kind of a much needed way of grounding this yeah. whole enterprise. It is all about Hawkeye realizing he's not an Avenger. Yes. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I'm going to make that joke every time. Okay, yeah. fair enough, fair enough. That's Hawkeye. It's on Disney+. Plus. Uh, Did uh-huh. you hear one other thing, right? Just want to quickly shout out the, the next season of How To with John Wilson. We've talked about this show. It's on HBO Max. Uh, it is a love letter to New York and all of its weirdness. And uh, this episode, this like beginning, just thrust me back into the wor- his world and the, the oddness of New York that I really miss right now. And um, he also, he, he goes through something. He goes through an experience, I think, Every New Yorker dreams of, you know, of you living in a place for a while and your landlord is like, hey, do you want to buy this place at below market value? And the entire episode is about him dealing with that. Uh, like, so how to apply for a mortgage, how to how to do all these things. And uh, I will not spoil where it goes, but uh, I think it's going to lead to a lot of great fodder for the rest of the season. All right, that's How To with John Wilson. Uh, season two debuted over the weekend mm-hmm. uh, or in, in the last week. I'm really looking forward to checking it out. Season one was obviously amazing. Uh, Jeff, do you have a chance to check this one out yet? Or um, I think you would love this show, Jeff. No, yeah, I haven't. I, I, I watched, I think I watched the, the original first season. Yeah, yeah. I thought yeah, 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 yeah. we talked about the yeah. first season together, I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I watched the first season, but I haven't watched any of the new ones. No. Yeah, okay. I was talking about the and, new one. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I will cool. also say it may, uh, you should watch the first season. Before you get into this one, like there, there is narrative continuity, yes. even yeah. though this show is mostly made up of, uh, you know, random video clips that he shoots around <laughs> New York City. It's an uh, incredible style of, of filmmaking. So it's extraordinary. So like it, it, mm-hmm. you kind of marvel at the just the pure volume of, of recording he must have done. And then mm-hmm. sort of it's just all constructed in the editing phase, it seems, you know, amazing. Mm-hmm. Indeed. That's how to John Wilson streaming right now on HBO Max. And that is what Devendra has been watching. Jeff. What have you been watching? Well, in addition to some of the stuff that we've already talked about, like Hawkeye, I uh, I checked out the first episode of Peter Jackson's new Beatles documentary, Get Back, oh. which is on Disney+. Plus. There are three episodes. Each is almost three hours long. So one episode is longer than most movies. Uh, I've only watched the first three-hour episode, nearly three-hour episode. Uh, have either of you guys checked this out yet? Nope, but I've been seeing my Twitter timeline tweet yeah, about it all yeah. week. It yeah. is incredible. Hmm. It is incredible. It's not like any documentary I've ever seen, but it's like how I wish every documentary was, which is you're just a fly on the wall, man. You're just hanging out with the Beatles as they work. It's it's incredible. The The, the amount of footage, I mean, there's a... The first episode does this really cool thing where it takes about 10 full minutes and does a previously on, <laughs> but for the Beatles career, you know, it like literally starts at, hey, these 14 year old kids met. And then it, it, you know, it brings you through all the biggest things like hey, Beatlemania and all the things that happened. <laughs> and then here's what, and then it's like, and then it was 1969 and they were going to make this album. And it's like, it, it's an amazing sort of encapsulation of the Beatles uh, career. Because this is, you know, right at the end of their career. 
Uh, and so that's a, a, an achievement in of itself. He uses really cool footage and, and sort of just, you know, I'm a huge Beatles fan. I, you know, lobbied my <laughs> high school to make Let It Be our uh, senior song. You know, I, I yeah, I mean, I was a, mad, a big Beatles fan. So this is already a catnip for me, but I would be hard pressed to any fan of art or music. I mean, it very much directly talks about the movie we're going to be reviewing in our main review, Tick, Tick, Boom. Um, this is the non-dramatized version of Tick, Tick, Boom. <laughs> this is actual musicians. That, so the premise, the premise is the Beatles decide they're going to make an album, but this time, instead of all of the layering of tracks that they've been the experimentation the pushing forward technologically of how music was created that the beatles uh, pioneered uh that they were going to kind of go back to their roots and they were going to make an album and record it live in front of an audience so they had to write all the songs learn all the songs and be able to play them uh so well that the, that the album would be just a live recording so that mm -hmm. they wouldn't they wouldn't have to go in later and futz with things they could literally just have the actual studio album be this live performance and so in order to, in order to write the songs know them that well rehearse them perform them they gave themselves 2 weeks <laughs> 2 weeks to do all of that so they literally like show up show up at this this studio without an album and two weeks later they're going to perform it live and that's going to be their new album <laughs> mm -hmm. it's Amazing. bonkers yeah. yeah like that is just like the level of yeah we'll just we'll just make it in two weeks you know so what you get to see is late stage beatles writing get back let it be uh i mean you 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 watch them sort it all out and figure those songs out and it is amazing i mean there's very little there's a title card at the beginning of of, of the show that says um you know there are sequences where we, all, all we had was the audio and we've done our best to you know use stock footage that made sense uh, mm. while we played the audio for you uh, and that happens quite a lot in in the first episode um but you know it, they also you know say explicitly that that they tried to present as true a timeline of events as possible so as to not misrepresent the process that happened and and the the show is very much tied to a calendar like you start on day 1 and you're going to have 2 weeks and the first episode is days 1 through 7 and it starts on a calendar and it shows you all the stuff that happened on that day and then it goes to the next day um, so you really get this feeling of what their process was like. And for process junkie like me, I, I mean, I just, it's fascinating to watch them work. You get to watch them work. It's not a documentary where we're trying to sort of formulate the feeling of them working or the, the sense of how this may have happened. It's literally like, no, this is, this is the process just laid out in front of you without any commentary, without any uh artifice or 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 framing device it's literally just we're going to show you what happened that day in as much clarity as we can and i am so grateful for that it just it feels like this window into something amazing i mean there are there are a number of takeaways that i got from the show mm -hmm. one of which is i mean paul mccartney 
is sort of putting the band on his back at this point and doing the heavy lifting. I saw somebody on Twitter describe it as like the kid in the group project at school that does all the work, you know? Um, but you watch McCartney work and there's like, there's a, a shot of him, you know, he's playing get back, but he doesn't know the lyrics yet. And uh, uh, evidently a lot of their process was to just sort of like vocalize like they don't know the actual words yet, but they know the, the melody. So he's just kind of like vocalizing until mm -hmm. he gets something that makes sense in his mouth. You know, he's like, nah, 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 get back. And then all of a sudden get back is, is there, you know, like he just <laughs> said those words. I don't know. He just, you see the moment where get back became get back. It's like, it's crazy. And while that's happening, George Harrison is yawning. <laughs> like it couldn't be less interesting to George Harrison. And you, you, I'm sitting there going, okay, in two days, like literally they show the calendar and they show in two days, two days out of this person's life, he created a song that me and millions of other people know by heart. It has had a huge impact on our culture. Like, in great, in two days, in just two days out of this dude's life, and all of a sudden there's this thing that exists in the world that means something to literally millions of people that is in my DNA, like the lyrics to these songs are in my DNA, and he's just like, <laughs> like just like coming up with it. It's 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 an extraordinary thing. Um, I, I was watching some uh, Sondheim documentaries this week because of uh -huh. his passing, and uh, many kind of shades of what you're saying in some of the stuff I was watching, like a couple examples being, I think he wrote the entire musical gypsy in like four months. Yeah. Is what he was saying. Yeah. Uh, which is like extremely fast period of time to write an entire musical. Right, right. Um, and so that, that reminds me of, of what you're saying. And then the other thing was he was talking about writing the song, um, send in the clowns, mm -hmm. which is his most commercially successful song. Right. And, uh, he was saying that the woman he wrote it for, I apologize, I don't, I don't remember her name, but there was a woman who he was specifically writing it for to perform, like for the first show. And he was saying, yeah, she uh, she couldn't sing particularly well. Like she couldn't hold a note particularly well. So I had to make everything into extremely short phrases. Wow. And uh, what kind of phrases are really short? Questions. So that's why <laughs> most of the song is questions. is wow. so that she could sing it, right? And then it's like, uh, what you realize when you watch these things is how kind of incidental, how many external factors yes. shape the art that you know many people consider to be genius, that many people revere. And it might be just because Paul McCartney liked the mouthfeel of the word get back. Yes. Uh, you know, and that's why it's get back, right? It, you, I mean, it is, it's, it, you are watching blue collar workers. It seems, you know, it, yes, it is a time period that was tumultuous for the band. Yes, there's a there's a lot of uh, ego and and argument that you, you get to witness, which is also extraordinary to see. I mean, the, it is a raw look at their like conversations that they're having about these songs, about other things, about the world. Like, um, but they're also just going to work, and they know they have to do this, and they're writing an album. Like, it, it's and they're constantly talking about this deadline that they've got. And I go, why didn't you give yourselves months to do this instead of two weeks? It's, it's bonkers. Another thing that is a big takeaway from the show for me 
is, you know, I grew up my whole life with the meme, I guess you could say meme, uh, I never thought of it that way, but I guess it's a meme of, you know, Yoko broke up the band. Mm -hmm. And you watch this uh, and you go, wow. Uh, You're the impressed Yoko, the band survived until this point. The Yoko John <laughs> dynamic is dysfunctional, dude. It. I had no idea the like, it, it is weird that she is just there all the time they're like it's the band it's the it's the four members of the band and yoko sitting four inches from john's shoulder she's just constantly and she's knitting or like crumpling up papers reading the newspaper just in this little circle of the band and it's just so weird that he forced that dynamic to fit his girlfriend in it's like it is really i mean you, you start to go you know what i would be annoyed at that too you know <laughs> <laughs> if if all of a sudden you know one of you guys is like i need my wife to just be here all the time and you could probably hear her chewing on on the on the podcast <laughs> but don't m mind it because she's just she's just here she just needs to be near me all the time it's such a dysfunctional dynamic it seems to me like he can't it's almost like, you know, these people that have, um, you know, emotional support animals, you know, they just need, need them near them. It, it, it felt, feels like that. It, I mean, not to, I don't mean to make her into an animal, but it, it's, it is, it, it just feels very bizarre. And I guess, you know, we, I was reading about it last night and I guess, you know, he was like insanely jealous and it, it just all feels very dysfunctional. Um, but, and they're all really young too. Is Yes. They're 26. The yeah. They're 26 years old. It's, it's, it's. It's insane. Uh, yeah, you go, you know, you, you, tick, tick, boom, about, you know, not doing mm -hmm. anything when you're 30. And you go, oh, they're at the end of their Beatles careers. <laughs> and they're like 26, 28 years old. It's and, and Paul walks around looking like this elder statesman. He's got this beard and long hair. And, and, and I mean, all of them kind of do. But they, they don't feel like young people. They don't feel like 26-year-olds. They feel like these, you know, accomplished artists that you know, have very much a, a sense of, of who they are and where they fit. And there's all this talk, of, there's this, all this talk of their manager trying to get them to do a live show, you know, overseas in this incredible place. And they're just like, no, we don't want to travel. Traveling sucks. We hate traveling. <laughs> it's, uh, it, do, I cannot recommend this show high enough. If you're a Beatles fan, it's essential. You've probably already watched it. But if you're not a Beatles fan, it is it's still very much worth watching just as the kind of documentary at least I have always dreamed of, which is just turn the camera on and let me watch. And, you know, of course, they're fortunate to have these like 600 hours of footage. Uh, Peter Jackson calls it a documentary about a documentary because it's really just footage from this other documentary that was being shot. But mm -hmm. so much that has never been seen before and a completely unvarnished look at what it took to make one of the greatest albums of all time, let it be. All right. Well, that's uh, The Beatles Get Back, and it is a documentary series that's streaming right now on Disney Plus, I believe, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, three episodes and each of them three hours. It's pretty wild. All right. Well, that is what we've been watching this weekend. Yeah, Jeff, I'm I'm always really fascinated by the creative process, and like, I get annoyed when I watch, you know, musical biopics. I hate musical biopics in general, and I, I always get annoyed when I'm watching them, and 
they show kind of how the song was created and it just doesn't feel true to life. You know what right. I mean? Like, yeah. I just don't feel the verisimilitude is there. Yeah. And uh, I appreciate that there is a document of how it actually does happen for songs that everyone knows and loves. So, yeah. yeah. Exactly. All right. That's what Jeff Kanata's been watching. Let's get to weekly plugs. Weekly Plugs, the part of the show where we plug something else that we've been working on. Uh, I'll plug something. been doing a lot of Twitter spaces, uh, which you can find on my Twitter uh, profile at twitter.com slash Dave Chensky, Dave Chen, S-K-Y. Uh, and most of the Twitter spaces I do, I actually make available for uh, my personal patrons uh, at patreon.com slash Dave Chen as a podcast. But sometimes I just leave them on the internet. And one of them I did recently was with the very skilled cinematographer and filmmaker Valentina V. Uh, and we talked about the Mr. Beast Squid Game recreation. She gave me a lot of great context for how difficult it must have been to actually do that. Um, so definitely check out my Twitter account. Uh, I host spaces all the time. Again, many of them are available on my personal Patreon, but uh, they are now allowing you to record Twitter spaces and you can listen to them on Twitter. So I'll link to that in the show notes. It's my Twitter space with Valentina about Mr. Squid's, I'm sorry, Mr. Beast's Squid Game recreation. Doing your hardware, your weekly plug. Yeah, I talked about before that I'm getting ready for Sundance in addition to all the other stuff that's going to be happening soon. Uh, I wrote up uh, the first details we've got on Sundance is VR and digital festival experience. And uh, the word they're using this year is bio-digital because uh, last year it was not in person. Everything was virtual. So they did this really cool VR platform that I took part in and I was able to like talk with people and like navigate around this virtual world. And they also streamed films digitally. Uh, They're still going to be having um, that digital platform this year, but people are also going to be going back to Park City, Utah for the in-person festival. Uh, So they're doing this thing. uh, It's called the BioDigital Bridge, where people on the ground can like look at a giant display and like peer into the virtual world of all the virtual people walking around. And uh, on the virtual side, you can also see a camera into that physical space and you can like communicate across this uh, window. Sounds really cool. Uh, I will be doing it virtually. I won't be there in person. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing where this goes. They're also building out more VR stuff too. So you can experience all this if you have a VR headset and uh, you get one of their Explorer passes. It's going to cost $50 this year, but it opens up, uh, you know, some mixed reality art projects and some other things you can visit too. And then, um, of course, you can also get those uh, Sundance tickets and watch some movies digitally. Uh, when they're premiering on their platform as well. And I saw a ton of movies last year, and I think it's well worth it. And it works on Apple TV and stuff, so you have easy ways to see these movies. Yeah, yeah so they're going to do digital again this year, huh? Mm-hmm. And I don't think they're giving... Like, I, I talked with uh, Shari Frillet, who is, like, the head of New Frontier, which has been their VR and AR studio, uh, or, like, that their that exhibition. She says, like, they're they're, you know, leaning more into it. They're investing more in it. I wouldn't be surprised if eventually they turn on this VR platform as something you can visit like once a month or something. There's no reason it only has to be available like when the festival is happening. Um, I, th- I think it would be really cool and would be a good addition for everybody with a VR headset. All right. Check that out over at Engadget.com. Jeff Kanata, your weekly plug? Well, I do a video game podcast called DLC. It's a great time to tune in if you're into video games it's a great time to tune in end of the year really cool releases we're going to be doing our our uh top video games of the year episode uh, pretty soon and in december so it's a great time if you're not 
a listener of DLC already to check it out at 5x5.tv slash DLC. But the reason in particular that I bring it up this week is because our guest this week uh, is a fellow named Shane Bailey, and he has uh, graciously invited me to be a, an ambassador for something called Game on Cancer, which is a, uh, a charity uh, based in Australia that aims to get funds to young researchers in the field of, uh, of cancer. So I'm really proud to be a Game on Cancer ambassador. He's going to be on the show, or he, by the time you hear this, he'll already have been on the show. We haven't recorded it yet, but uh, by the time you hear this, uh, he'll have been our guest on DLC. So we'll talk all about what that charity does, uh, what Game on Cancer, um, how you can help, uh, honestly, help them raise funds and how my ambassadorship will uh, will take shape over the next year. Um, something I'm really proud of, and I think we can help, we can all make a difference. And it's great to marry a video game and video game culture with doing good in the world. So check that out at 5by5.tv slash DLC. And uh, what's the name of the guest again, Jeff? His name's Shane Bailey. He, uh, he, um, it works for this uh, nonprofit, and um, um, we, you know, I'll, I'll have all the details on the show. We'll talk to him about it. It'll be uh, really cool. But uh, people can find out more about Game on Cancer on Twitter, twitter.com/slash/gameoncancer, or uh, Instagram.com/slash/gameon_underscore_cancer. Um, lots of ways to to help out. Very cool. A um, couple of other plugs I want to make. First of all, uh, you can always support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash film podcast, where you can sign up for ad-free episodes and or exclusive After Darks. This month, we got a full slate of stuff for you folks. We're going to try to get to Arcane Season 1 in the After Dark next week. And we are planning to review and revisit Matrix Reloaded as well as Matrix Revolutions in the lead up to the Matrix Resurrections, which is going to be premiering later this month on HBO Max as well as in theaters. To make sure you don't miss any of that, go to patreon.com slash film podcast. And uh, we never want you to donate to us if it in any way causes you financial hardship. If you want to support us without donating or becoming a patron, it's very easy to do that. Um, all you got to do is go to Apple Podcasts and leave a star rating or a review for us. Just takes a few seconds of your time, and it really does help. The main show of the Filmcast will always be free. And uh, other shout out I want to give is to hashtag slash tag. If you want to recommend something for us to watch or check out, just use the hashtag slash tag right there on Twitter. We'll see it. We'll try to get to it. Thanks so much for all of your recommendations. They have helped to shape this podcast. Okay, let's get to our review of Tick, Tick, Boom. Hello. Hi. Welcome. I'm Jonathan Larson. I am 29 years old. I work at the Moondance Diner. Check. One sec. Do we take reservations? No, we do not take, we're, we're a diner. I have an original rock musical. Hey, boy genius. And I have spent the last eight years of my life writing. He's getting out. You're gonna be rich and famous. And rewriting. Did you pack it yet? Oh, I'm getting so close. And rewriting. Can I hear it? Any day now. Eight years! And the time keeps ticking. Tick, tick. You need to ask, are you letting yourself be led by fear or by love? Fear! A hundred percent fear!
That was from the trailer for Tick, Tick, Boom, the new film by Lin-Manuel Miranda, which is streaming right now on Netflix. His first film, too. Directorial uh, yeah, debut. His, his directorial debut, uh, obviously, is a movie that was very uh, personal to him, I think. And I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. On the cusp of his 30th birthday, a promising young theater composer navigates love, friendship, and the pressures of life as an artist in New York City, end quote. Uh, the structure of this is very curious, I got to say. So my understanding is that Tick, Tick, Boom was a one-person rock opera mm-hmm. uh, that was put on by Jonathan Larson, who is a real-life uh, musical composer in living in New York. And, Peter Brent. Yeah, uh, yeah the, the guy who com- composed Rent. And it, it was based off of his life. And so Tick, Tick, Boom... It was an actual show that that uh, kind of was on, um, and that basically Andrew Garfield plays Jonathan Larson in mm-hmm. this movie, uh, and he's playing Jonathan Larson doing the show Tick Tick Boom, right? Yeah, Meanwhile, it's a movie about yeah. a show about the guy who would go on to make Rent. Yes, who made the show, and. Then portions of the show Tick, Tick, Boom are then dramatized mm-hmm. during the movie on Netflix, Tick, Tick, Boom, right? So uh, it's not just like a one-person show. It's you're watching the one-person show as the kind of bookend device. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's actually a, another bookend device that we'll get into maybe later <laughs> in the spoilers. There's like a bookend on the bookend device as well. So uh, I think these. just yeah. narratively and structurally, it's really, really curious. Uh, now, Devinder Hardwar thought about you when, when we were watching this movie for a couple of reasons. Number one, mm-hmm. you're not a big fan of musicals, so I'm curious if the movie worked on you. But number two, yeah. um, you also have spent more time living in New York City than any of us. It is true. So I wanted yeah. to start with this question of like, how well did you feel this movie captured what it was like to live in New York? Obviously, you lived in New York at a different time than when Jonathan Larson lived in New York. So I know there were sort of mm-hmm. factors that weren't there uh, when when um, you were living there. But I'm curious, like overall, did you feel this captured the life of what an artist in New York might be like? Definitely. I mean, I was not an artist. I was somebody who moved to New York with the goal of like writing, you know, becoming a technology journalist. And I think I kind of got there, you know, but I had no a lot kinda of friends. about it, man. Kind of. No kind of about it. Yep. I, I, I don't know. Um, but I had a lot of <laughs> friends who were more like bohemian and, you know, were trying to get into the arts and were trying to do creative writing. Uh, I see a big difference between what I do, which is, uh, you know, it's, um, it's creative in a sense, but it's not like creating, uh, an artwork or something. Um, but I know so many people who were in living situations like this because yeah, it's possible to live in New York if you have a ton of roommates and you have a really cheap space and, uh, you know, a lot of things are broken and, yeah, that's it. But the reason you're there is to create something. And because you believe in the creative uh, vibrancy of New York, I think one of the early conflicts of this movie is that um, I think Larson's girlfriend just tells him, you know, you don't have to be in New York to make art, <laughs> you know, like you can yeah. be anywhere else, which is the thing I'm also trying to deal with now being in Georgia and being away from New York, but also trying to do the things I wanted to do there. Um, this movie very much evokes that sense of being young in New York and desperately doing whatever it takes to succeed. Um, that sense of everybody being very work focused um, and just the the city around you just kind of crushing you at the same time and also feeling like, you know, you don't have enough time because the thing about New York and I think we were talking about this when we talked about like L.A. vibes uh, recently 
But the thing about New York is that you are always comparing yourself to everybody else, you know, and where other people are in their careers, what your mentors have accomplished before you. And sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's good to have those goalposts to be like, okay, I gotta, I gotta like, you know, uh, motivate myself a little more. Sometimes it's really unhealthy, you know? So I don't know. I think this movie captured a lot of that complexity, but yeah, I also, I'm not a huge musical fan. You know, I've talked about this. It's, it's fine. I wanted to review this because it's Lin-Manuel Miranda's first movie. And also I like to see Andrew Garfield kind of getting back into more like experimental things, more creative things. Uh, I do feel like we lost him for a bit after, uh, after Spider-Man, you know, he did uh, under the silver Lake which was kind of fine. Um, I know he was in the eyes of Tammy Faye, but I just really haven't seen much of him. And this is a guy that... To be fair, really he also yeah. was in Martin Scorsese's Silence in 2016. That Did was we incredible. know that he, he was in could silence. sing? Yeah. Did we know that? I don't know. I don't know. Because he can he sing. Dude can yeah, yeah. sing. Yeah. You can sing. You can sing. But there was before Spider-Man. I feel like he was so interesting to me because he was in what those, those British films, Red Riding. He was in Never Let Me Go, which is yeah. an incredible adaptation of that Ishiguro novel and he was in the, the social the social network as well um but yeah he he's done a lot of stuff it just feels like he hasn't been like as focused as he was before maybe um so yeah I, I think overall I really enjoyed this movie it's a moving tribute to young genius you know somebody who kind of had the sense that he had to do a lot very early um uh like there's that I, I think the way it's shot the way it's framed to makes it not just seem like you're watching a one-man stage play i like the characters involved i think there's a lot of like visual inventiveness and a lot of cool set pieces throughout this um and the music's cool it's fun it, it was fun to watch um something we'll probably talk about later on though is that uh this idea that you have to accomplish something great before you're 30 because your mentor did or somebody you admired did it's great to motivate. I think it's really, really unhealthy though. And I see it too in a lot of artists who end up doing a lot of things like Jonathan Larson did, like ignoring his friends and being kind of crappy to the people in your life who love you because you are so laser focused on this thing. And this thing may never succeed, you know, and maybe it will, you know, uh, I, I think Lin-Manuel Miranda is really intrigued by these people like, uh, like Hamilton as well, who kind of had that sense of like, I have to do so much uh, because I'm this genius and a once in a lifetime genius who has to just create as much as possible. I have a sense that he, like Miranda himself, is kind of having that vibe. Um, it's on a broader it was a huge level. Theme in, it was a huge theme in Hamilton. You know? Absolutely. Uh, huge yeah. theme in Hamilton. And he, I mean, he had his own success early on too within the Heights. So that's what I'm saying. Like, I, I think he's really intrigued by that. And also it that that kind of personality trait applies to him as well. I do think for the broader people, you can enjoy it and, you know, feel the tension of it in this movie. When people apply this to their own lives, though, man, is it unhealthy because uh, there is life after 30. You can create. You can still do art. It's uh, it's totally fine. Um, <laughs> you, you, your artistic life is not over. I just want people to take that away, too. We should disclose that everyone on this hard, podcast hard so. disagree, Devendra. <laughs> hard disagree. Uh, you know, co-hosts excluded. But we should, yeah, we should point out everyone on this podcast is over thirty, so it feels kind of uh, quaint to hear someone uh-huh. like, kind of agonizing around like what they're going to create before they're thirty. It is hilarious um, hearing twenty somethings worry about that deadline. Uh, it's it's adorable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, all right, Jeff Kanata. Curious what you thought about Tick Tick Boom. Well, Dave. 
I guess you could say what I thought about Tick, Tick, Boom is best summed up in the form of a limerick. Huh. You have to sing it this time, too, Interesting. Right? All right, I, okay. I sing the intro. I don't know about singing the limerick. All right. <clears throat> tick, Tick, Boom shows the extent creating art is no accident. Writing a song hurts when it becomes commerce, but it's nice when it makes the rent. Nice. Mm-hmm. Love the rent mm-hmm. tie in there, Jeff. Nicely done. Not not sure about the meter on that one, but you know what? what? The, the, the content is amazing, and that's what that's you. the most important part. So, uh, I would say my biggest compliment to this movie is that I can't imagine it as a stage play. Mm. I, mm-hmm. I feel like uh, you know we've talked about a number of musicals this year, a couple at least. Uh, Pro- and, probably uh, this year is the most musicals we will have in a year. Yeah, on uh-huh. any year of the film cast, my guess. Like, I, I would, I would think that's probably true. There's been so many, and we got West Side Story coming up too. You know, so there's like, yeah. it, there's more musicals this year. For some reason, everyone's really into musicals right now. Well, yeah. we need to feel better about the world. We need to feel something, <laughs> and we need to feel better. Yes. Uh, you know, in the Heights, I think we all talked about how it, it sometimes it felt a bit forced onto the screen, um, or or at least the adaptation onto the screen kind of felt like it was. Um, the artifice of the screen, maybe perhaps, at least for me, I won't speak for you guys, worked against it a bit. And I don't, I did not feel that. It, it, it's possible that, you know, I'm less familiar with this or this, just the structure of the musical as sort of a autobiographical telling of events worked in its favor to, in that way. But I thought how it is constructed, how it is presented, the, the, the structure of it, the, the, film qualities uh you know how we're you know flashing back inside a flashback sometimes all of that stuff really worked to make it feel like a film a film first and not just an adaptation of a staged event uh and i thought i, I thought that was very impressive i thought Lin Will miranda really brought a lot to the table here and created something that felt like it needed to be a film rather than was just you know i think we talked a lot during In the Heights about comparing it to Hamilton, which is like set up cameras and watch people mm-hmm. on stage. And mm-hmm. I often prefer that. Just, you know, if you're going to adapt a stage thing, maybe just shoot the stage thing, or at least I think that's worthwhile. Here, I don't I don't believe that. I think that this really um, created a, a new way to experience this that didn't feel like it was less than just the stage performance or... I agree completely. I, I feel like the the dramatized portions really enhanced yes. the movie. Arguably, arguably too well, I would say. Like, in, to the extent that I... Uh, this is the first musical I saw this year where I was like, the musical numbers felt like they were kind of interrupting <laughs> the, the drama in yeah. a way that, that mm-hmm. was kind of distracting. Like, all the rest of the musicals we've seen, it's like, oh, it's time for a musical number. This makes sense. Whereas in this show I was watching, I was like, the the dramatized portions were really compelling to me, I thought. Yeah. Yeah. With a I, couple of exceptions. With a couple of exceptions. I mean, I think some of the songs are fantastic. There's a few songs yeah. that I feel like, eh, not yeah. not the best example of of this particular uh mm-hmm. composer, writer, yeah. singer, yeah, you know, songwriter. Um, but the, I mean, there's one in particular there that uh, is introduced as a, you know, um uh scenes from a relationship. Uh, expressed through music that is just a rip roaring fun. So good. So good. Such yeah. a great uh, and, and and has something to say and is really yeah. clever and and witty. Um and there are a number of songs that I think are 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 really excellent. Um I watched this over Thanksgiving weekend with 
my family in town and had my dad and stepmom uh, watch it along with us. And um, my stepmom said, you know, she was going to go to bed. It was kind of getting late. She's like, I I'm only gonna, probably going to watch about in half an hour and, and then I'll go to bed. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, stayed through the whole thing, mm -hmm. watched the whole thing. So I think that's a pretty ringing endorsement of somebody that, you know, that she, she's familiar with Hamilton, but I don't think, you know, not exactly a huge fan of Rent, for example. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I think the movie is very entertaining to a wide group of people. But along the lines of what Devinder was talking about, you know, I never lived in New York, but I, I did relate. You know the struggle, Jeff. Yeah. Certainly. Yes, yeah. certainly. And it, and I think it, it expresses that struggle really well, that desire to make something great and feel proud of the work that you're doing and this constant temptation to quote unquote sell out or, or, you know, compromise your idea for yourself. And, th you know, through the whole movie, I was like, oh man, yeah, I totally relate to this Andrew Garfield character, the, the Jonathan Larson character. And then I realized, at the end, I was like, I'm not the Jonathan Larson character. I'm the best friend or the girlfriend. That's what I am. <laughs> I'm the girlfriend that like moved away. And, and the sensible one. Like they're yeah, all more sensible. Moved away than he to was. the mountains, maybe? No. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, I was like, oh, no, I'm her, I guess. That eh, sucks. <laughs> but um, it, it, it certainly, you know, I think it is a, a very, um, poignant expression of that feeling when you're young and you're in a big city and you are standing in the shadow of these giants that were there before you. And, you know, uh, I did that thing as an actor where you're, you know, you're constantly like, well, so-and-so did, you know, did this by this age. And then you pass that age and you're like, okay, well, next person, so-and-so <laughs> didn't do anything until this age. And then you pass that age and you're like, well, Harrison Ford. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Really, Scott didn't make a movie until he was like 40 something, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. And then you pass Harrison Ford's age when he got Star Wars and you're like, God damn it. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I definitely related to that. I think the movie is, is very fun. It's very bright. Uh, it talks about some serious things, but I think it, it is, um, it's a good time. And I think the music is lively. The, the framing devices really work. Uh, you know, I would, I would classify this as a good sit. Mm. All right. I got to say, mm -hmm. I, I really enjoyed the movie as well. I think all of the stuff you guys already said, which is it really captures this sensibility of, of trying to create something great and struggling with it. And for me, the parts that really stuck out were this idea of balancing art and commerce, right? Obviously, I'm somebody who has uh, worked a corporate job for the last 10 years of my life. And... Um, and I think this movie vividly illustrates the benefits of that, right? Of like working a stable job uh, and not, you know, going into like creating things full time because it's really, really difficult and punishing and brutal. And the rewards are few, even when you do succeed. Um, and so I really was was moved by this movie. I thought it was a very powerful illustration of this kind of dynamic about what what creators go through and the the challenges of struggling like should i devote more time to creating things but there's so few chances of succeeding and we, even if you do succeed what's the reward there versus like choosing a safe path that was the kind of conflict that really stuck out to me in this film mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't think this movie is necessarily saying that's always better i think for those people it ended up being better because they all dealt with the struggle 
too. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's I, not, I, I don't know that the yeah. movie comes down hard on one side or the other. You know, yeah. I think if, that if, this yeah. movie is is kind of the musical version of adaptation. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. it's like that's yeah. a great reference. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. an artist yeah, who like it's it's it was so hard for them to make the piece of art that they just sort of had to make a piece of art about, about. how hard it is to make yeah. the piece of art. That's a great, yes, great. Yeah, and, and Tick Tick Boom basically the the stage show is about mm-hmm. how hard it was to make a piece of art that they were working on. So yeah, I I have much more to say about this movie, but why don't we get into spoilers to do that? But overall, I really liked it. I think you should check it out, and uh, I think you'll you'll find it to be interesting. So. At the very least. Let's get to spoilers for Tick, Tick, Boom starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. You're going to see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course... You're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret. You want to be fooled. All right, folks. Let's talk about spoilers for Tick, Tick, Boom starting right now. I, I just want to start by saying that... I, I was terribly, terribly sad after I watched this movie mm-hmm. um, and learning about the details of Jonathan Larson's life and how it ended. And, and if you are a musical theater kid and you you know follow that world, then you'll already know what happened. Um, but I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be thinking about like I didn't know the detail. I didn't know the full scope of what exactly went down. Where he struggled for so long to make this thing. Um, didn't make it, made this other thing that's about the making of the thing, as you said, Jeff, then made you know one of the most revered, iconic musical works of all time and did not live to see its success. Yep. Yeah. Literally changed Haunting. musical theater forever yeah. mm-hmm. and had thought that he was working to do that. And the day, literally the day of the first preview of the thing that would change musical theater forever is the day he passed. It's so blue. upsetting. It, it's it's just de- upsets me on a really deep level. Yep. You know, like, the universe just, is so unfair. Yeah. Well, and yeah. that's. It, it, I think that's one of the things that looms over this movie. It, I think this movie mm-hmm. lands very differently if you know that fact or if you don't know that fact, because I, well, if, I, I think it's clear from the beginning of the film that he is no longer with us. Like mm-hmm. it, it, the the beginning of the film, the framing device makes it very clear that he's passed. Right. So if you don't know that. <laughs> then you you kind of know he's passed, but you don't know exactly how, like maybe he lived to a ripe old age. Like you don't know exactly. But it's, right? it, 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 yeah. if you know that, if you know that little detail, yeah, all it's, it's pretty wild that he created something that's about tick, tick, boom. It's about the clock is ticking. I've got to make this. I don't yeah. have a lot of time. It, it, it's almost creepy that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that is the theme of this entire musical. And it turned out to be true. I mean, he had no way of knowing this. He died from an aneurysm that was undiagnosed. He had no, it, completely out of the blue. And yet there's this sense of, of this ticking clock that he's got to create something great before his time is up. And his time was up far sooner than most people's and, and far sooner than it should have been. It's I know it's it's, mm-hmm. it's very poignant mm-hmm. to me. There's a few things that I wanted to bring up that I was reminded of when I was watching this. One of them is honestly a conversation we had with Dan Trachtenberg shortly after the debut of uh, Ten Cloverfield Lane, mm-hmm. and how I think we had him on the podcast. I think we had had him on the podcast shortly after yeah, the movie yeah. had come out, and you know we talked about the making of the movie and all this stuff like that, and then. At the end of it, you were like, what are you doing next? And he's like, 
you got you got to make the next thing. You know, you got yeah. you got to make the next thing and keep continue proving yourself to be actually very good, um, or else you're not. And uh, that, that, that's not exact wording. I'm paraphrasing heavily, but it just kind of struck me. Uh, th- that moment kind of struck me when um, Judith Light. He has a conversation with Judith Light at mm-hmm. the end, yeah. right? And yeah. she tells him like, "What what are you going to do next?" And it's like, "Hey, the thing that you spent eight years of your life on didn't work out. Like, what are you going to do next?" Right? And, and maybe don't spend eight years on the next thing. Yeah. You, well, you just gotta you just gotta yeah. keep working keep on the going. next thing. That's keep that going. is the life of a writer is you got to keep working on the next thing. Um, the other the other thing I was going to bring up that I remembered was also um, the documentary Val on Prime Video mm-hmm. uh, that Jeff and I have spoken about this year, and basically like uh, there is a project in that movie that Val Kilmer spends a lot of time working on that doesn't come to pass, and it's really upsetting and really sad and you you kind of when you watch a, a show and, or a movie like tick tick boom and you watch a show like val um you you start to appreciate the enormity of how much work is done in creative arts that just never gets seen right mm-hmm. like and this is true like if you go to sundance or any other film festival where you like there's hundreds of movies that play at film festivals only a fraction of which ever get distributed and ever get seen by people i right? almost and, wonder if that's true anymore by the way because <laughs> At well, least yeah, from I mean, what I see now, yeah. people can get just, just throw it onto Vimeo if they want to. Yeah. Right? But like, yeah. but even in those cases, most people will probably never hear of those films. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, and and that's that's kind of the thing that that you get a sense of. And finally, one third third example I was going to bring up of something else I thought of when I was watching Tick Tick Boom is, I think Ethan Hawke gave a TED talk recently, and he was saying how sharing art with the world is difficult because. In general, the world has historically been a bad judge of art, right? Certainly when people are alive. And there's countless examples of people who never saw success in their lifetime, um, but where like posthumously they were able to find the success that they truly deserved. And, you know, I agree with you, Devendra, that this whole like, you got to get it done before you're 30 is kind of a toxic point of view and can be damaging, even if it is somewhat motivating. Um, so I don't, I don't disagree with that, but I also think that it's very true that like, you, you know, you got to find some internal mm-hmm. You got to find something. We're not here forever is the right. ultimate idea. It's these two poles we're kind of dealing with. Right. And well, you, you got to find internal yourself. motivation and gratification mm-hmm. for the art itself, because yeah. you're probably not going to get the validation from the outside world. Absolutely. And yes, and that, that's, the, that's the sentence yeah. right there. Mm-hmm. I, you've hit on it, Dave. That's, that's mm-hmm. exactly, I think it, it's, it's not even, I think the, for me, the wrong takeaway is, um, keep working on something and eventually you'll make rent. Exactly. It, exactly. It's, yes. Yeah, or you know, pun mm-hmm. very much Make intended. Rent. Yeah, um, yeah I, I know but, what you're saying. Yeah, but the, I think the takeaway is you have to make the art for the art's sake. Yes, because you can't make it for the success's sake because that is ephemeral and unpredictable. And you may and you may never see it. You and even likely the most successful will never artists, see it. Yeah, you likely never see it. And even the most successful artists of all time, quote unquote, successful in terms of how their art is revered or how it shaped the culture, um, never saw it. Like, you know, many, many artists or writers, you know, did not see success in their lifetime. And they are people who we consider the most talented people of all time. And one, yeah, one of the things I love about this movie is that it ends the way I wanted La La Land to end. Hmm. I don't know if you guys recall our, our review of La La well, Land. I was well, very, very mad about the ending of La La Land. 
I, I, I thought of La La Land strongly when I watched this movie, Jeff, because yes. I was like, this movie does a much better job of yes. illustrating why the people can't be together than La La Land did. Yes. Right? It does like, everything that La La Land wanted to do better than La La Land, except for maybe some of the musical numbers. Yes. <laughs> I, I actually like the music better than La La Land, but I yeah. agree with you that like you really get a sense of why this these people can't be together, basically. Yes. Right? Like why Jonathan and his girlfriend can't be together because of what they want out of life at this point in their right. lives. Yeah. And spoilers for La La Land. If you don't want to be spoiled for La La Land, skip forward two minutes. But uh th- the ending of La La Land bothers me a lot because it it sets up everything that this movie sets up and then just gives them the magic golden ticket inside their Wonka bar. You know, it it just hands it to them on a silver platter. Both of them get exactly what they've always dreamed of. No problem. It's fine. And Interesting. Interesting. That was not my complaint, but I'll let, I'll let you finish. Go ahead. Yeah. And I just like the fact that, I mean, obviously there's issues at the end of the line, whatever, they can't be together, but whatever. The The point I'm trying to make is the like, you know, um, her getting discovered in a small play or whatever. It just, it, it felt like the magic wish fulfillment where this movie's central theme is no, it takes a lot of friggin' work. And no matter how much you believe in the thing, that might not be the thing. The rest of the world may not agree with you, but you got to keep your nose to the grindstone and just keep at it. And I think that's so much more, A, interesting, and B, realistic, uh, a a message. And I think it is so much more stirring and and and, and grounded and feels like the better takeaway, it's less this this Hollywood notion of like, oh, the magic fairy dust lands and you get everything you've always dreamed of uh, instead of it's really fucking hard. And mm, most yeah. of the time, pe- it doesn't happen for most people. And you have to derive some joy out of the process, not the end, you know, destination. I, I think that's a great point. That, that's actually not what I was thinking about the ending of La La Land, right? The ending of La La Land is basically they can't. So going to spoil the end of La La Land again, but they can't be together because of what amounts to scheduling issues, right? Like <laughs> this, you found the love of your life, but oh, I got to go do this job and uh, I got to be away for like four to six months. Therefore, we can't be together. And it's like, eh, you know, it kind of is like, how how incredible was that love really if, uh, if you couldn't survive four to six months? Meanwhile, uh, in this movie, uh, and also why does Ryan Gosling have to set up a jazz restaurant you know nightclub in la anyway this movie i think does a much better job of illustrating like why it's so important to be in new york um it does a much better job of illustrating kind of why this job for his girlfriend might be so important for her right just based on the circumstances in her life um so i i kind of bought the ending of they can't be together much more in this film than i did in la la land so that's kind of, that was kind of why i appreciate it. basically you and i both compared this movie favorably to la la land for different reasons <laughs> but yeah i i think this movie is, is like a much stronger statement about the struggle of being an artist uh than la la land was um even though la la land did have better music so and i think um, it gives voice you know to the a lot of movies i think would perhaps give short shrift to the to the friend the uh michael his his friend mm-hmm. that chooses to have the corporate job you know the real yes uh, and and i don't think it, i think it really makes his case in a in a sympathetic way it's not like oh he's sold out and he's working for the man and it's all negative it's like no he he makes his case as to why he's using his limited time the way he's using it and it makes it a i think a a noble uh or not noble perhaps but 
at least a Wor- worthwhile. Worthwhile, yeah. I would say. You know. Yeah. And and I agree. The stuff with Michael was the most beautiful part of the whole movie, in my opinion. Yeah. Like his relationship mm-hmm. with Michael and how that played out, I thought was just. That uh, that song really about them uh, visiting his new apartment for the first time. Um, so fun. <laughs> I feel like yeah. every New Yorker knows that building, too, by the way, because <laughs> it's like right up there next to Central Park. So it, it is one of those things of like, if you're a struggling artist, you don't know what a, a living in a doorman building is like. And, you know, having like all this space and all these amenities and everything is clean. My first apartment didn't even have a buzzer. So we had to do the thing that everybody does of you throw your keys down like four stories and hope it doesn't get like stuck in trees or in the bushes. So people can get inside. Uh, that's, and that was a pretty nice apartment too. That was a nice brownstone. Um, I, I've never lived in like the really, really crappy spots, but I've certainly visited a lot of friends ha- who have, it seems like every New Yorker is dreaming of that. You know, that, that is the ultimate success being in a doorman building, being near central park, of course. Um, and that song is just a lot of fun because it does kind of dive into like, man, there's the beauty of New York and the things I will always love. And then there's the stuff that doesn't, you know, is not so great. Like being, being forced to pack yourself like a sardine on the subway or just dealing with like the indignities of city life. Sometimes there's good and bad. I do like how this movie kind of, uh, both relishes in the magic of it and doesn't shy away from how hard it is too. Yeah. And one thing I appreciate about the movie is it doesn't let Jonathan off the hook, you know, Mm -hmm. like, and obviously he wrote much of the uh, sort of story of the movie, but uh, he is not afraid to make himself look like an asshole in this movie. And I I think he is quite unpleasant and inconsiderate to many of his friends in the pursuit of his art. And the part of the movie is to show you the cost of that. And I really, Mm -hmm. I appreciated that he doesn't come out looking like incredible, you know, like, uh, it, it's very much an examination of the highs and lows of what it's like to be an artist and and the impact that that has on your friends mm-hmm. and and what it's like for your social group. The the, gr- um, the whole thing with his girlfriend too, I think, is really it's very realistic because in a lot of these yes, relationships too, if like if somebody is the like quote unquote creative genius, um, is the other person ignored? Are they just you know the girlfriend or the boyfriend? Like, is are you doing justice for you know towards them? Are you in your relationship? And I think it is a problem everybody has, uh, certainly young creatives as well. So I found that to be, yeah, very, very true to life. What did you guys think of the little parts of the musical of his that we saw that, you know, uh, I thought that it looked, it looked kind of cool. It sounded like a Black Mirror script. Yeah. And it looked I mean, kind of cool. Yeah. My <laughs> idea of it, and this is just, you know, I, I could be completely wrong, but I <laughs> is that he, in the context of Tick, Tick, Boom, is creating a musical that is exaggerated as to why it would never work, mm. right? He's he's <laughs> created something that it, it, even to him is ridiculous as an example of why it wouldn't work. You know, this this sci-fi, uh, you know, crazy robots and people idea. I think he has sort of exaggerated his own. Uh, but but I could be wrong. Maybe that was legit. Maybe that's the <laughs> musical he really did write that didn't work out. Uh, mm. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think um, uh, it, it, my understanding is is an actual real thing. So oh yeah, yeah. Um, but <laughs> but you know I, I don't. It's interesting that you took it that way. Some of the music <laughs> so. is great, but yeah, it does seem ridiculous on the face of it. Like, but also prescient, I guess. I, but I just, would have loved a good breakdown of like what it was supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. It's just the idea. The, I think 
the idea behind it, so I, I thought it was cool. The parts of it that we saw were cool, and also at the same time, Jeff, the part I do agree with you on is like, it's very easy to understand why that movie didn't get picked up, or that mm-hmm. musical didn't get picked up, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's ahead of its but time. I, I, yeah. I do think that there's this fundamental idea of working on something for eight years, struggling with it, putting so much effort into it, and then it amounting to nothing, that is kind of, like, this is a thing that, if it were not for this Netflix movie, no one would ever even know what it is, right? right? Like outside of a handful of people. And it's a very haunting idea to me, you know? Um, I do, do want to say Tick, Tick, Boom was revived on stage, I think, uh, as of 2001. So it has been produced or performed by like a handful of other actors. So it is a thing that's known in like New York and yeah. theater circles, yeah. But this kind of stuff happens all the time, you know, like, and mm-hmm. where somebody will work for years on something and then it will debut and it's a, it's a movie, it's a musical, like just reading about Sondheim, like he had many, yep. Yep. some shows ran many, many years and some shows ran for like a couple weeks. Right. And it's like, you're putting all your work into this thing and hoping it will stick. And, you know, that's mm-hmm. why at the end of every one of these reviews, I try to say at the end of the day. It's pretty impressive that Lin-Manuel Miranda made a movie. It's pretty impressive. Um, it is uh, so. also a reminder to me that maybe we live in a society that is just not not conducive to people taking these wild, creative, and artistic swings. Uh, we, 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 it'd be nice if we had nationalized healthcare. It'd be nice if we, nice if we had support systems to support the arts, you know, and help people out more, which I know a lot of other countries do, especially yeah. in Europe. So, yeah. Now, th- those countries are not without their own problems. Sure, you know, sure. Like, yeah, it's many other, many of the beloved movies, like I was talking about Flea earlier today. Mm-hmm. And if you if you watch the opening credits of Flea, it's like there are uh, many sort of national arts funds that kind of yep. sponsored that movie. And it's like mm-hmm. there's many countries around the world that actually value the creation of art and will support it with money. And obviously the U.S. does too, but like, um, it, it's also very highly politicized in the U.S. that it's not in other countries. So, yep. it, and you it, still have to, you will have to live without healthcare. Like yeah. I know so many people. I know people with children, you know, in New York City who have to go without healthcare because they're freelancers and paying for healthcare is like paying for rent again. And even after, even after Obamacare, like it, it's still too hard. There's so many things we could be doing, not just to help the arts, but to help people in general. So, yeah, these the struggles presented here in this movie, um, I don't want to romanticize them too much because uh, a lot of them are symptoms of a completely broken society. Yeah, a society that yeah. doesn't value art, cre- artistic creation in general. Or people, right? or people, or children, or parents, yeah. or education. So, anyway. I do think it's really weird that you have this profession being a composer of musicals where on the one hand you can struggle to survive and literally have your electricity turned off mm-hmm. and on the other hand you can make 80 million dollars <laughs> you know like there's some people who like Lin-Manuel Miranda make 80 million dollars oh, I'm off sure of being a musical writer rent made at least that much uh, yeah. you know whoever got his estate pretty uh, right yeah. Yeah, and it's just it's just it's just so weird that we have these you know like many artistic professions like being a book like a an author you know you can make thirty thousand dollars a year or you can make five million in a year and it's just like mm-hmm. it's and it feels and like it has yeah. almost nothing to do with the the quality level of your output. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, some of it has to do with it, but yeah, I, I would agree with you that there are tons of external factors, and um, you know, it, it would be nice if we lived in a society where it wasn't so 
economically personally mm-hmm. risky to try to right. create something yeah. of value exactly you know? like you were talking about the the divide between going the corporate route or the artistic route and i do think uh guys i probably i wouldn't be doing what i'm doing if i didn't take that leap and it was just like okay i'm gonna go to new york i'm gonna do this for as long as i can you know focus entirely on writing and trying to get into the media world um if i had just kept doing it part-time in massachusetts away from new york most of those opportunities probably would not have presented themselves so being in that place yeah you're saying taking a huge risk actually helped you and it sucks that you had to take a huge risk it sucks that that has to do that i had to do that but also I, i do think a lot of um maybe the world would be a better place if people could make those leaps yeah and not worry about you know being bankrupt if they have to go to the hospital or yeah, something people too, so. would be better self-actualized i think so yep, for sure it's it, it basically I, I think what we're reacting to right is that it sucks that this guy a brilliant composer struggled for so long to just survive like mm-hmm. that that sucks that you know we as a society in some ways failed him you know mm-hmm. and um it's a bummer and hopefully we can build a better world for so sure. this is also anyway. me telling you to you know take that leap when you can dave because uh the <laughs> clock is ticking <laughs> tick tick boom dave tick tick boom yeah. all right well i hear it guys i hear it thank you so much uh for the encouragement and thanks for listening to this week's episode of the podcast stick around here we'll be discussing next week but before we get to that i do want to mention a few things uh number one you can find more episodes of this podcast at the filmcast.com email us at slash filmcast at gmail.com our theme song comes from uh tim McEwen, uh whose latest project is varsity blue uh and be sure to check out his work right now for the midnight you can also find our uh, weekly plugs music from Noah Ross. And our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker and YouTuber Kyle Corwith. This episode was edited by Baby Zhang. Next week, we will be reviewing The Power of the Dog, which is a uh, Jane Campion movie on, on Netflix. I've heard it is amazing. I can't wait to talk Cannot about it with you guys. Yeah. And also yeah. for the After Dark, we got some Arcane Season 1 going. So a lot in store for you on next week's episode of the Filmcast and the After Dark. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you later.